All right, so since Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday, we've been walking through as a church the different stories that occurred after Jesus was spending time with his disciples because he resurrected, he's talking with them, and that's why one reason we have all these, the newspapers along the stage is these different ways, kind of, uh, I don't really know if they had newspapers, but just the idea of Jesus has risen, the tomb is empty, where is he? He has ascended, he has left, he said he's gonna return. Now, all this is happening, and then, 50 days after this occurred is the, is the gathering in which the, the Jews would have been moving even, or, or uh, traveling to Jerusalem for one of their main feasts, which is the Feast of Pentecost, also known as the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Harvest. And so they would have already been gathering and there'd be colors and there'd be food and there'd be interaction and fellowship, some of them catching up for the first time. Hey, I didn't see you since last year when we had this feast or whatever it may be. And so I love that we can even portray what little bit we can of just how the disciples may have felt when they were gathering together on this weekend of the feast and they are seeking, the ones who are believers in Jesus are seeking God as a group. You know, the Jews would be doing kind of their things, but here you have this group of believers seeking the Lord and asking and praying and saying, Jesus ascended. We watched him go into the sky and he said he promised he was going to send a helper he promised there would be great power, and we're just seeking you in that. And that's what brings us to today in the passage we're going to read. So let me read for you several portions of Acts chapter 2. I'm not going to read the entire thing. It is quite lengthy. I encourage you to uh, either read it this week, maybe listen to it. I listened to it just to kind of gauge how long that would take. And maybe it was five minutes or so. But what I found was it was so meaty in certain sections that I personally, I do better reading than I do listening. So I was thinking, I, I need to read this in smaller portions, and that's actually part of my plan this week. Maybe you can join me in that in your devotions of the week, right? Every morning, read a little bit, and just allow yourself to read it, find other passages that remind you of it, and whatever it may be. So we're gonna read a few sections of it, taking it from the beginning near the end, and you can read in the gaps this week. So Acts chapter two, starting in verse one. When the day of Pentecost arrived, again, this was the festival, all the Jews, they would have been gathering anyway for this thing. So when this is happening, well, the disciples, they were all together in one place. Verse two says, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem the Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, right? We were to, they were there because of the festival. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. I'm gonna skip all those verses that describe all the nations they came from, but it gets that detail, which is a great example just of how detailed God is with his word. It doesn't just leave it kind of vaguely. He actually walks us through all these areas they came from. Well, if you skip down to verse 22, then you, hear, then you have Peter, and he gives this sermon. So let me give you some excerpts of this. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, I'm gonna pause you real quick to say, he, he's talking about, he's summarizing the three years of ministry Jesus had on earth, and among those who were local, they would have experienced this, but even those 
who uh, maybe traveled from a distance, they would have been coming over the last three years for these festivals to Jerusalem. They would have been hearing about this man, Jesus, who claims to be the Messiah. And we're like, ah, you know, some of them believed and kind of followed along, uh, but most of them weren't really into it yet. And so they would have just been hearing these miracles. Hey, while you were away and you came back since last year, he fed 5,000 people on this mountainside. What? And they're like, oh, wow, while you were away, he healed that guy. Hey, the guy that's like always been sitting there, he healed him. And so they would have been hearing these stories, these mighty works, wonders, and signs. So that's, you know, G- uh, Paul is, not Paul, not Jesus. Peter is saying, hey, this is the Jesus. Now, that same one, so verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, I love that, right? Who murdered Jesus? Well, fundamentally, Jesus allowed himself to be killed. This wasn't something that was out of his hands that he couldn't stop. This was part of God's foreknowledge and plans. But it says, you crucified him and you killed him by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. That's awesome. I can't believe I'm skipping down to verse 33. I was like, wow, it's like the bulk of the sermon, but here we go. So verse 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he, being Jesus, has poured out this that you yourselves are now like seeing and hearing. Well, verse 37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And just down to verse 41, last verse here. So those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So that's the story of Pentecost. It's a holiday, I guess you would call it that, for Christians because of this moment of the church and what is happening and the Holy Spirit and, and the, the pouring that occurred. And this wonderful story fundamentally describes the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the church. Remember that Jesus Christ, he is the cornerstone of the church. He is the chief shepherd of the church. He is the eternal bridegroom and he is the great architect of the church. He is the pioneer and sustainer of our faith as we read in Hebrews. And in his sovereign goodness, he told his disciples he would ascend to the Father, sit on the right hand, or sit the right hand on that throne and he would send the Holy Spirit as the divine helper for the church. Here's three verses that describe this. John 15, 26, Jesus says, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. In Matthew 3, 11, there's the, uh, John the Baptist says these words, and so what occurred on Pentecost Day was the fulfillment of these words, where John says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not even worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And then lastly, the verse, I already read this, but I'm gonna reread it in verse 33 from Acts chapter two. It says, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Friends, Jesus was the agent behind the Holy Spirit's baptism upon believers. And when the Spirit was given the green light, 
from Jesus, all right, it's go time. He rained down in this spectacular way. And this is recorded for us in God's word. It's not just something that's passed down as if it's legend. It's not something that was uh, recorded by outside historians like Josephus that people love to reference, but this is etched in the eternal word. So we can be sure of its accuracy. We can also be sure that God wants us to learn from this. It's not just in there coincidentally. It was written for our benefit, not merely to help us think, hey, that's a great story. Okay, let's go get some food. No, for us to learn from, in the words of 2 Timothy 3, for our, re- for our teaching, for our reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that we as men of God or women of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. That's why it's written. So let us be taught, let us be reproved now, corrected and trained in righteousness, so that we can be approved and complete and equipped for every good work. As we do this, it's important to allow God's word to be the filter for our experiences and not the other way around, where we allow our experiences to be the filter by which we read God's word. We wanna learn from the word and have it instruct us. So as we study Acts 2, I think the question we must consider is this. Was the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2 only for the church then, or is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit also for the church now? How we answer this question impacts our understanding of who the Holy Spirit is for the church, what he yearns to do, what he is doing already, and how we can participate in his work. Again, was this remarkable moment of the Holy Spirit's work limited to Acts 2, or is it a common practice throughout church history in the ebbs and flows of generations who have sought the Lord compared against generations who have denied, turned away, and there's been kind of like those low moments. Let's consider the evidence here. Acts chapter two, as I read, Christ poured out the Holy Spirit upon the believers who gather together. In Acts chapter eight, verses four to 17, the apostles learned that the Samaritans had believed, and they had been baptized with water, but not with the Holy Spirit. So they showed up, and they prayed over the new believers who then received the Holy Spirit. Acts 10, 44 to 48, specifically refers to how Peter was preaching to some of the Gentiles at Cornelius' house, and then the Holy Spirit fell upon them. And then in Acts chapter 19, one through seven, Paul was with the disciples in Ephesus, and he says, hey, you know, did you receive the Holy Spirit? And they said, no, we haven't even heard of the Holy Spirit. Who's that? And then he explains to them uh, who it is, so then they get baptized in water, and then Paul prays over them, and then they get baptized by the Holy Spirit. In letters like 1 Corinthians, Paul gave a lengthy instruction, specifically in chapters 12, 13, and 14, but the whole book, in a sense. Paul gave lengthy instructions for how to act in unity with the Holy Spirit and with one another, rather than stirring chaos and confusion and disorder among each other, and also as a uh, display or a witness to the community, to the city. In letters like Galatians, Paul reminded the believers to stay in their freedom and not subject themselves anymore to the yoke of slavery with the Old Testament law. He says this in Galatians 3, 5. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Again, this example, verse three is another one too in that same chapter in which you'd have the spirit is working in mighty ways 
I found it best to read these New Testament letters with the understanding that the believers received the Holy Spirit in a striking and powerful way, demonstrated with things like transformation, with miracles, with tongues, with power, and with assurance. And now this work of Jesus Christ, pouring out the Spirit, is not only in the New Testament writings, but it's actually found in church history. I don't know about you, but I love church history. I read it all the time. It's kind of like, you know, I don't think I'm paid to read church history. I just enjoy it, right? I study it, write on it. And when you read the various leaders, you will learn that they consistently tell of these pivotal moments in their life in which they experienced God profoundly and powerfully in ways that they did not previously know, despite knowing Christ despite being believers. Some of them were even ministers or preachers or had walked with the Lord for a while. And then something occurred with them. Then they could not describe it in any other way than what I'm gonna read for us here. You have Puritans like John Flavel who writes on this, others like Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield, other preachers like John Wesley, writers and preachers like Andrew Murray, R.A. Torrey, even D.L. Moody, his story, I'll tell you quickly. Most of you might be familiar with his name compared to the others. I find that it's interesting. So he had this successful ministry in Chicago, and he was, it was great. He's preaching, and then the story goes that two ladies came up to him after one of the services and said, I'm going to be praying for you. He's like, what are you praying for? And they said that you would, uh, praying that you might have greater power. Now, he was put off by it a little bit. Because he's like, we need greater power. This is a very effective ministry. All these people in Chicago, this is great. What are you talking about? Well, then he thought about it for a while, prayed on it for a while, and then found himself realizing what they meant. And he began praying and pleading for God's outpouring on his life and ministry. In a greater way and with greater fervency. And after six months of this, the story goes, he was walking through New York City, actually walking on Wall Street, and God suddenly answered him and the spirit fell upon him. And Moody called this a sacred experience. In fact, if I remember it, the writing was something like, he wrote like it's like, um, either it's hard to describe or it's like so personal and so sacred, he doesn't even really wanna put words to it, but he did. And and so sacred in which God revealed himself so deeply to D.L. Moody that he was overwhelmed by God's love. So a moment ago I asked, was the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2 only for the church then, or is it also for the church today? And I believe we can see from Scripture and from church history that the Holy Spirit continues this profound supernatural work today. When it occurs in an individual, we might say that that person has encountered God in a distinct and powerful way. When it happens across an entire congregation or a community, we will say that the Holy Spirit has poured out revival. In fact, this is one of the reasons that we pray for and seek the Lord for revival. I think it's our greatest need. Everyone has like, here's the greatest need or here's the challenge for the church. Well, here's mine, friends, and I've been saying this for years and it stands the test of time and what short time of ministry I've had. And that is that the revival is the greatest need in our community and our generation because nothing will save souls and break chains and empower the masses than a total and full outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Only revival will save our friends and neighbors and enemies before they die. And I say this just statistically. I've been preaching here for nine years, if you count the campus years. And in that time, we've seen God do an awesome work. Hey, this is cool. Church has grown. Other churches in the area, they're growing. This is great. Yeah, well, 90% of our town still doesn't believe and doesn't care. So 
we, we are on pace, you know, adding a little bit every year. We're on pace for 90% of our friends, enemies, and neighbors to go to hell. It's like, well, unless the Holy Spirit pours out, there ain't gonna be a change. It's not gonna just happen by having great worship and stuff. It's not like people are just gonna be like, yeah, yeah, I wanna, I wanna go to church. That's cool. No, they don't, they don't wanna, until God intervenes in their life. Same with the church. Revival is the only means for our churches to be revitalized with life. Rather than acting like a bunch of, oh, I'll just call it spiritual zombies, right? They claim to be born again, but they act with deadness in their lives. Spiritually alive people do not worship only on Christmas and Easter. We need revival in our church, the church. This church, our friends' churches, and the churches here in this area that we, we see, we talk to, we hang out with. So based upon the, the text from Acts 2 and then supporting texts in the New Testament and the testimonies of the church, the men and women of the church, of our Christian heritage over the last 2,000 years, we can observe the need for the Holy Spirit. So let me, let me walk us through three different outcomes of the Holy Spirit that we see in Acts 2 and also verified in the lives of these folks over the years. Perhaps moments of this you can relate to. And in the big picture, it's my prayer for all of us to experience these. So three outcomes from the Holy Spirit's work in Acts 2. The disciples, they experienced, I'm gonna read all three for you just on the front end so you can track here. They experienced radical change. Secondly, they had full assurance of their faith. And thirdly, they were potent witnesses for Jesus Christ. So I'm gonna address each one of these. The first is that they experienced radical change. Every part of these folks in Acts 2 was affected by this moment. The ones who were the disciples, the, and, you know, the 120 who have gathered. Their whole being was affected by this. This wasn't some like secret moment in the, in, the, in the quietness of their heart. This wasn't some silent whisper in their ear. This was an extraordinary total body experience. Their whole person's faculties their entire senses were impacted by this. Their mind was filled with a longing and a hunger for the things of God. Their hearts were filled with a fierce devotion for God. Their emotions were filled with an inexpressible joy. Their bodies experienced tangible change in appearance, not only in Acts 2, but then also in other testimonies. One good thing of the church heritage, right? We have God's word, it is sacred, it is perfect, it is the nourishment we need. But he also uses the biographies of our brothers and sisters in Christ who lived before us, walked with God, and then died, and they're in heaven, for them to tell us about their experiences. And so one of these, along these lines, would be Jonathan Edwards. He wrote, when he encountered God, he wrote of the flood of tears and the allowed weeping that he was displaying, which was, if I recall, uh, completely uncharacteristic of who he was. And it wasn't, it wasn't Pastor Adam crying. Like, yeah, that's, that's pretty normal. And, uh, this is Jonathan Edwards. And those in scripture here, they had this uh, encounter with uh, tongues of fire and, and speaking other languages to be able to communicate the gospel to people. And they're like, I don't even speak this language. And they're you know, saying that. Not only was it that, but they just have this entire internal, all being encompassing perspective that Paul writes in Philippians 3, 8. These are his words. And this, I've read this for years. Actually, this was, this was one of my little speeches in high school graduation. But it makes even greater sense. It, it kind of comes to life a little more in light of this kind of encounter with the Spirit's outpouring on Paul's life. 
in which he can say something like this, I count everything as loss. And that's after his whole resume that he just broke down in, in Philippians 3. But I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things, which he did. He lost everything. And he counts those things as rubbish in order to gain Christ. What is it that allows a man who has everything going for him to say, that's all rubbish compared to knowing Christ? It is nothing other than The, the supernatural outpouring of the Spirit. It doesn't come by just uh, a natural means. Secondly, a second outcome of the outpouring of the Spirit here in Acts 2 and then also in church history is the full assurance of faith. When I say assurance, think confidence, think certainty, think conviction about the things of God. All doubt was removed. Jesus and his truth about the kingdom were as real to these folks as the sun shines and as the grass is green. What gave them this assurance? Only a supernatural encounter with God. No more second guessing, no more uncertainty, no more wondering, no more deconstructing the plain truths of scripture, but assurance. They knew it and they believed it with full conviction. Wouldn't you love to have that? I mean, all the doubts and questions and the things that might keep you up late at night to be able to be taken to the throne of grace and answered with the truth and the assurance given by the great gift of the Spirit. Christians who have experienced this encounter from the Spirit are assured of the truth as they are about their own hair color. They know it, and there is nothing that could change that. And not only assurance in their minds, but this assurance bled out into their actions, the way they live their life, their perspective on life. First Peter 1, 4, Peter wrote this. He says, in Christ we gain an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for you. When the Spirit pours out upon a believer, they are filled with a secure assurance in their eternal inheritance, even though they've never seen it. You can look at your earthly inheritance that you may receive one day, and you can see it and work yourself through some timeline. But spiritually, we have an inheritance, and you can be assured of this. A moment ago, I mentioned John Flavel. He's this pretty famous Puritan minister for those who read or study those guys. And he wrote of the full assurance that he experienced. It was so powerful. He said that he utterly lost sight and sense of the world. In fact, he goes on to describe, it's kind of hard to read because it's like old English, but it's like hard for me to understand. I'm like, this is where growing up in West Virginia didn't do me any favors because my, I'm like, I just don't, I just don't read Shakespearean English. <laughs> I don't understand it. I had to read it a lot of times. And so he, he wrote something just about the, the idea of even dying like meant nothing to him. Like it was fine. He just was like, whenever. All he wanted was more and more of Jesus Christ. And this is a guy who could write us, take all of like our theological ideas in like a small group and his stuff would just blow it all out of the water even if you took all of our best thoughts that we could compile as a church. He was a brainiac. Those who have encountered this type of outpouring of the Holy Spirit, they know without question that Jesus resurrected and that God's kingdom is eternal and 
then they lived like it. They weren't bogged down in the world's affairs and they were not stuck in the delusions of their society. They knew their eternal passport was a citizen of heaven and they lived like it. Thirdly, we observe from Acts 2 and also parts of church history in which they were potent witnesses for Jesus Christ. The disciples in Acts 2, they testified with great power and efficacy. Everywhere they went, people responded to the gospel. Some didn't like it. Some, you know, they doubted. Some had questions. But then many believed. I mean, many people believed. And it wasn't like they went into a place that kind of knew about Jesus beforehand. We're talking the, the Greek world. Jesus wasn't even on the map. At least here, if you go somewhere, they might know Jesus as a cuss word or like the guy who's on a cross or at least driven by a church or something. But nobody even knew who Jesus was. And God moved through them with boldness and power. We read in the book of Acts of thousands of people. In this case, today's story, 3,000 right there in that moment responding. Thousands who responded through the bold and the effective witness of the disciples. Now remember, these are the same disciples who walked with Jesus for, I mean, at least 12 out of the 120. They walked with Jesus for three or more years. They saw amazing miracles. And yet they still kind of doubted, you know, like at his death. And then even after the resurrection, like what's really happening here? They don't totally know. It wasn't until this outpouring that then they were struck like with a lightning bolt and then half the disciples traveled to the farthest points of the world and then uh, you know, some of them also stayed and they were totally different people after this moment. A lot of you, you'll tell me like, I just wish I could talk to Jesus. Like I wish I could walk with him. I wish I could have been like Peter. It's like, you know what? Peter walked with him and he still needed this moment to be as powerful and as effective as you read about a lot of us just assume it all happened at once or whatever it may be. Until they experienced the outpouring of the Spirit, they didn't even have the courage to stand up for him, the clarity to talk about him. Like, How do I talk about this? And Jesus, you know, you're gonna have the words. You know. They didn't have the power to preach the gospel either. And not only did they have a witness that had courage in their words, but it was in like the state of their heart too. They didn't care what happened to them when they preached. So the authorities were telling them, hey, if you preach, uh, you're gonna go to jail, uh, you're gonna be fined, you might even be killed. And they were like, bring it on. You know, We read this in hindsight, like, wow, okay, yeah, that's what they did. And then we just drink like a latte. But in their case, they're like, okay, um, give me the keys. I'll open the jail cell for me, you know? And I'll jump right in. There's my new bed for the night, sweet. I'll count this worthy for the sake of the cross. Or they're told, here's the fine. We read about this, the guy named Jason, he was fined and everything. And it's like, yeah, uh, he's probably like, yeah, here's my checkbook, take it all. I don't care, God will fill it back up, you know, whatever it is. Or the ones who are dying are like, yeah, sure, tie me up, stick me on the, uh, on the stake, so be it. I'm gonna be with Jesus anyway. And like, they didn't care. And that kind of, that kind of mentality and boldness is not insanity, it's not aloofness, it's not carefreeness, it's the opposite of spiritual apathy. It's, it's spiritual fire and effectiveness. Oh, where is it? Here it is. A few days ago I started this biography, this guy in Nepal, he ministered from like the 40s, 1940s to 95 maybe, something like that. And I was reading this just the other day and worked through 
most of it, or like half of it or so. And two things stand out to me. One is some of the opening here. I'm gonna read this for you for a moment. It says this. These were the rules under the ministry that he was starting and where he went, little town, like villages across the mountains of Nepal. Oh, I didn't just, he was in Nepal. It says Nepal. But if you can't read that. So he ministered all over Nepal. He was uh, Nepalese. And where he went to these villages, these were the rules, like, of the authorities. They were told, listen, to him and to the other villages, if you preach a faith other than the one you were born into, which they were all born into, Hindu and Buddhist faiths, depending on their families, you will be imprisoned for three years. If you baptize anyone, you'll be sentenced to six years in prison. Uh, Anyone who is baptized will be imprisoned for one year for just being baptized. And those were the rules. When he would lead people to the Lord, he had them follow Christ for two years before he baptized them so that they would know, all right, when you get baptized, you're going to jail. And like, it was just like, baptized, all right, go to jail. Like, that's just what they did. And the jails were miserable. They weren't cushy American jails. And so these guys endured that. And I was reading through this, and so the, the, this guy, the reason I bring this up is not just because of the persecution, but the, the, the means by which God used him to save and lead nearly 20,000 people to Christ during the course of his ministry. They did it by, he was going jail to jail because every jail he went to, he would lead his fellow prisoners to Christ and then the jailers to Christ and then the authorities on the outside would be like, we put you in the jail because you preached the gospel and then you preached the gospel in the jail and everybody got saved so now we have to send you to another jail and he would go to that jail and they'd show up and they, like, each one got like more secure or the circumstances sounded worse because they would uh, like keep him outside and other things. So the jailers were like, what, who did you murder? He's like, I didn't murder anybody. I am here because I preached the gospel and then he explains to them who Jesus is and they kept getting saved and that was the means over the course of Five out of the six years. He was supposed to go to jail for six years. They kicked him out early because he kept saving everybody that he kept going to, all the multiple jails. And as I was reading, like, what gives a man like that the boldness and the assurance and the confidence and the consistency? And, and, and again, I didn't get into the details, but just quickly, I mean, beaten and uh, awful circumstances. Again, it wasn't going from the Hilton Inn to the Marriott to you know, whatever it is. From Acts 2, we see these three sorts of observations. A radical change that they experienced, the full assurance of their faith, and they were potent witnesses for Jesus Christ. That occurred in Acts 2. We see multiple stories like this throughout church history. And so my question for you as you're listening here and and chewing on this is, do you want this for yourself? Do you want this for this church? Or this community? Do you ever read the New Testament and you say, I feel like there's kind of like two worlds going on here. Like I read the New Testament and I'm like, wow, they really, they really lived one a certain way. And then I look at my life and I'm like, but I just want to watch football and eat chicken wings. But these guys are like giving it all up. Like you know, whatever, whatever the distinctions might be. We read in scripture and we see a fierce devotion. We see unwavering assurance. We see effective boldness in the testimony of Christ's work. Do we want this? 
Friends, if you do, I'm gonna walk you through what could be a process to help you. And if you don't, my prayer is that you will. If you would want this, something like this, I encourage you to just take the simple words out of Acts chapter one, verse 14, when they were gathering. What did they do? It says this, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. It was in this seeking of the Lord that God moved. They sought him with pure motives. They sought him with obedient hearts. They didn't seek with hypocrisy of sin in one part of their life without confessing that. They implored the Lord, please move, please act. Christ had told them that power would come upon them and they interceded as an individual, literally like with their own words and together among one another. And friends, I think that we must seek the Lord. We must beg him to revive our own hearts. We must urge him to move in the hearts of this community. We must plead with him to awaken our soul, to long for him and his presence more than whatever else might occupy our time. The latest TV show, to use one of the lamest reasons we might, like affections of our heart as opposed to God. Let us seek God with devoted intercession, not something like a short Twitter length prayer, but a full devoted time to God. A question I've asked myself as I've been preparing this message and thinking on this for six, seven weeks since Resurrection Sunday is this question, am I content with the state of my life with Christ? Another question has been this, and I ask it of myself, and I'm asking for you all to honestly assess. Is the extent to which God wants to work in me and through me to reach our community, is what he's done so far, is, is this it? Is this the extent? Friends, will we allow a holy disturbance in the things of God to move us with what these old school theologians call unction or pleading that God would deepen our love for him, pouring out his spirit upon him, mercifully giving assurance in areas of doubt and making us into a bold witness for eternal things and setting our hearts on fire. I, I, I'm convinced that if, if, if men and women alike the ones I named a little bit, John Edwards, D.L. Moody, George Whitfield, and so on and so on. I can go through a whole, whole array of biographies here. If they found themselves saying, I want more of God, and I'm not content with where I'm at right now, but I want more of him, and not, not for some like uh, false motive of I just want a bunch of power to be able to prophesy, or I just, want, I just want to be able to speak in tongues, or I just want to be able to do this, this mighty thing. No, like, I want God, however he chooses, so be it, but I just want him. I want as much of him as my heart can take. I'm gonna seek him with diligence, living in obedience. Again, not just seeking him like on Sunday morning. Yeah, I mean, you can pray as hard for 60 minutes, sure, but like, what's the rest of the week look like? And seeking him with a heart that says, God, for your glory, to be made as great and as 
as mighty as it possibly can be in one feeble human being's body and life. I want as much as you are able or willing to pour into this vessel and pour it back out. That, that kind of... That kind of mindset. I know that's a prayer of mine. And uh, I pray that, I, I genuinely pray it's a prayer of yours. So let us conclude here with a worship song that's gonna lead us in this. Maddie, you and the team can, can join me up here. And I wanna use this as a chance for there to be a genuine personal confession to the Lord of your desire for more of him. Deeper devotion, greater power and effectiveness as you share your faith. Greater strength and endurance in the struggle or the trials that you're in. Greater love for your enemy, because that's, that's hard. And that's your, to the, to the degree that God would mercifully bestow on you. that he would fill you in the way that we have seen him do so.